in the 7th century BC, in the Temple of Jerusalem, there was a group of priests called Deuteronomists who took over the temple and banished the goddess who at that time was married to Yahweh. Uh, so there's always the male and female, the god and the goddess, who were the creators together of the world and who, so to speak, were in the Garden of Eden. And then these priests got rid of the goddess, whose name was Asherah, destroyed her sacred groves, threw her statue out of the temple, threw the serpent, which was the symbol of her power to regenerate life, also out of the temple. And they created the myth of the fall in chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis. And they turned the goddess into Eve. And the goddess had always been called the mother of all living. And they gave that title to Eve. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hello, welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Lauren and I are incredibly excited to bring Anne Baring's beautiful wisdom to you today. She is a historian and Jungian analyst, and she has recently wrote a book called Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul. And really, this book was an answered prayer for Lauren and I, wanting to understand the history of what happened to the feminine and what happened to women because of the suppression of the feminine. And this book is a Bible. It goes through the history of everything that has happened, starting with what she calls the lunar era thousands of years ago, and moving into what she calls today the solar era. This woman is an elder and a woman that has been walking the walk and talking the talk way before there were other people doing the same thing. When we talk about women that have paved the road, Anne Baring is a road paver. She graduated Oxford in the late 1950s. She became a dress designer. Think of Oscar de la Renta. She traveled the Far East and then became a Jungian analyst where she learned about the feminine principle and really dove deep into understanding the patterns and the oppression that had happened to women. And through this work and through her passion to restoring the balance on earth, she is just one of the most special human beings. And so, so yeah, we cannot wait for you to listen and to dive in. I have chills because thinking about a woman her age and her time doing the things she did before it was really safe, okay, common for women to do that is so powerful. And the fact that she literally wrote the book on the divine feminine and she's been doing it before all of us. And it's so powerful to learn 
from pioneers like her and to absorb her wisdom and to I just have such gratitude for the the path that's been opened up for all of us who seek to understand what's happened and how to understand some of the things we feel inside our own bodies. And I think it's really important to dive into the history of how we got here so that we can forgive, so that we can move on, so that we can actually create new history for women and men of future generations where we're all more balanced and healthy and clear. So without further ado, we introduce to you Anne Barry. Well, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be honored by women and recognized by women and to have my work really taken on board because now is the time that I wrote it for, really. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was doing that, but obviously the book is absolutely right for this time. And so for the people listening, perhaps maybe we can give a little overview about this book and the reason that you brought this book into the world. Well, I brought it because I'd been given many, many talks or lectures over many years, over 20 years. And then I thought, well, why not put them in a book or gather the, the major part of the material and put it into a book? And that's what I did. And... Obviously, my Jungian analysis helped me understand things at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And I used to suffer from depression. And that's why I went into analysis to help with that. And I understood that depression can be a call from the deep soul to pay attention to what it's trying to say to you. And so when I, the more I worked with my deep soul or with my longing to write and longing to communicate, the less my depressions got. <laughs> So, you know, I could see that that's a call from the soul to to listen to it. But of course, nobody understands that. They take antidepressants, etc., and Mm -hmm. run away from the depression instead of going towards it. Mm. So the book, The Dream of the Cosmos, can you give us kind of like a high level overview of what you were trying to portray through this writing? Yes, what I was trying to portray was what had brought us to this present state of the world, what had brought us to this crisis, what are the roots that lie in the historical past that could explain ourselves to ourselves and how could we understand ourselves better than we do if we understand the historical background. So the book was really uh, part of it, not all of it, but to begin with was a survey of the what I call the lunar culture, which was a time which was governed mainly by the moon, that was the most important luminary in the sky was the moon at that time, probably for 25, maybe 50,000 years, very long time. And that was the time when the great mother and the goddess was the primary archetype that was worshipped, because the great mother was imagined as the creator of all, but she was also, all life was her child, so to speak. So there was no creator beyond creation. There was no separation between the great mother as the source or ground in the cosmos and what was the life of the earth. You see what I mean? There was no separation, no big gulf between the creator and the creation. So as I say, that lasted thousands and thousands of years. And then gradually it moved into what I called the, the solar era, when the sun became the predominant influence, the idea of the, of the light of the sun drawing people and being the main focus, if you like, of a warrior culture. So in about 
4,000 years ago, about 2000 BCE, we really entered the time of a warrior and warrior cultures everywhere sprang up, but particularly in the Middle East. And then we got the rise of a succession of great empires, one after the other, starting in the Middle East, which is the area where there is now fighting at this very moment. Uh, so it was very interesting to see the change of emphasis instead of everything being sacred and everyone being part of a sacred order we became separate from the deity we saw ourselves as as it were just going our own path we had gods and goddesses and ultimately we had the father god that we have today or we had till recently but he was far away in the, up in the sky, in heaven, in another world. He wasn't with us in this world, imminent with us, so to speak. He wasn't in every blade of grass, in every bird's wing, in every animal's cry. He was not present like she was, the great mother was. So that was an enormous difference. And so gradually there, out, there grew a sort of gulf between the deity and this world. And eventually we had with the Hebrew culture, we had the myth of the fall, and we had the emphasis on the father God banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Paradise. I could tell you a great deal more about that, but probably there won't be time. And from that time, we got the emphasis on a rather fierce punishing God and humanity being somehow sinful and banished to this world, which was no longer sacred. It was no longer part of the divine order. And this mm -hmm. was an enormous change because people saw themselves in a totally different way. They began to see themselves as they do today, having no relationship really with nature, no relationship with the plants and the trees and the animals. And, but they began to get the idea, which is in the book of Genesis 2, that man has been put on the earth to sort of manage it or control it and dominate the animals and dominate the earth. And this, unfortunately, has grown into the scientific paradigm that we have today, where science sees us as quite separate from nature, quite separate from the life of the cosmos, and sort of going our own way without any connection with the cosmos, no relationship. And this is an enormous change because the sacred order has gone we are now in the dominant position in relation to nature and the earth. And look where it's brought us, this philosophy or this cosmology. It's brought us to a time of enormous crisis where we may not survive because we've inflicted such harm on the planet through our belief that we can do anything we want. Mm -hmm. The planet has suffered terribly from what we've done and what we're doing. So that's a kind of rough overview. I have a chapter on science in the book. I have a chapter on Jung, who was the great teacher who I took as my mentor. I have a chapter on the sort of modern state of the world and a chapter on alchemy and what alchemy means because the great work of alchemy was about changing human consciousness. Mm -hmm. That is the great work and this is what we're all engaged in at the moment as we go through this tremendous birth or transformation that we're going through now. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. And I have a question for you, Anne. So in this shift between feeling the goddess or God or connection to all living things, we're a part of the whole, the great cosmic order, 
to actually we're not we have no connection we're inherently sinful god is above us god is the great judger of whether we ascend or not this shift feels like a great trauma in the collective of our consciousness and do you have any idea of why this shift happened how was there any type of purpose do you have you studied this at all it's very difficult to say what the purpose was, except that it was to develop human consciousness. This about when it started about um, 4,000 years ago. It was the time of the early Bronze Age when there, a new kind of weapon was developed. Bronze was a very strong weapon for, for war. So it, as it were, fed the instinct for war. And more and more uh, cities grew up with more and more young men in them with nothing to do because the agricultural side of things was replaced by the uh, warrior ethos. So that young men, instead of going into farming like they had done for thousands and thousands of years, were taken into armies and then armies fought other armies. And, and so it went on from there. It sort of just happened really. Nobody kind of saw it happening at the time. Looking back on it, it's easy to see when and why it happened. But at the time, I don't think people saw. But um, I think there was a, a great philosopher called Owen Barfield and he did try about 50 years ago, he wrote a book called Saving the Appearances, which I mentioned in The Myth of the Goddess and also in The Dream of the Cosmos. And he saw human consciousness evolving in three phases. He said, first, there was the phase of participation when we really felt we belonged to what was surrounding us. We're part of the environment, part of nature. Then we had the phase of separation, which we've been in for 4,000 years. And we're just coming out of now into a new consciousness. And finally, he said, if we're lucky, we'll have final participation in which we reconnect with nature, realizing that we're part of nature and part of the cosmos. And this is what's happening now. I mean, with, um, for instance, with quantum physics, the dis tremendous discovery of quantum physics is that we are all connected. Everything is connected to the cosmos and to the earth and within the earth and within the cosmos there's absolutely no separation between all our lives and the life of the cosmos and the life of the earth so so this is one the, the great discovery really which is helping us and should help us to understand that we're all as it were children of the cosmos we're all here for a very definite purpose which is to look after the planet and to serve the planet and not serve our own particular national interests or um, what we want, the power that we want to have over other people. We don't need all these divisions between creeds and cultures and ethnic groups, nations. We're, we're all one, really, but we're all individually part of the whole. We don't have to deny our individuality and our cultural achievements in the different cultures. But we simply have to realize that we've got to work together for the sake of the planet. We can't anymore be fighting each other like we are now in a ridiculous way in the Middle East, you know, to try and get control of one piece of land or another piece of land or this or that. We can't have expansion anymore of warrior ethos. That time is over. So Anne, as you speak about this, it's bringing to mind like the, the need for the embodiment of the feminine. As, as you share these things, it it is clear that the masculine principle was put to the forefront of the culture and of the, the ethos of the culture. And so how do we 
shift in these times into a more balanced society where the feminine and the masculine can come together? Well, I think it's happening now. First of all, you had to have the release of women from the long repression that they'd gone on, because for these 4,000 years, women had not been speaking at all. They had no, no part at all in the running of the nation or the running of the country or the running of the religion or, or whatever. Their, their voice was completely cut out and silenced, except for a queen here and there. <laughs> but now is the time. Women are now educated. They've been educated for 100 years. They've uh, gone to university. They've found her voice. There is a danger that feminism can carry them in the wrong direction and can become all about power over men rather right. than relationship with men. That's a very important point. And when you have that, you have what's called the animus taking over in a woman's psyche so that the masculine and feminine in a woman's psyche are not balanced. Too much emphasis on the masculine, copying the man, copying the worst aspects of the male ethos and not valuing what it is to be a woman. There's very, very great need for women to value their gender and also think of the experience of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years that women have had as carrying children, being the carriers of life and serving life through looking after their children. That is their most important role in the past and it's still their most important role. You don't see men really caring for children. It's still the woman who, who cares for the child children as they're growing up, who cooks the food, usually, who goes shopping, usually. So the old patterns are still there and they're extremely valuable and extremely important. And I don't think women value them nearly enough because they've put all the emphasis on becoming equal with men in the sense of education and power and jobs and running things. And it's extremely difficult to do both without suffering right. no nervous collapse. <laughs> it's very true. And and how would you describe the type of power, feminine power, that comes when we stop striving to climb a ladder within this current system that has been built by men and we shift the paradigm? Like, How do we actually embody our feminine in such a way that we can still survive in this society and create the type of ripple of consciousness that's, that's needed and being asked for in this time? It's a question of values. In this culture, there are no values because women have been so diminished that they've forgotten what values they stand for. And men have neglected the values that were given to them by religion. All the different religions gave values um, you know, to, to the male culture, so to speak. But those values were always subordinated to power and to the need to have more power over other people or other, other nations. So the values were not truly valued. <laughs> but if women can realize what they stand for and can connect with the values that truly serve and respect life, and that there's a lot hand into that, which I ought to go into later maybe, then they can recover their true role on the planet and they can become the guides to men in a gentle kind of way, not saying you must follow us, but can we work together on this new way of living in relation to the planet and serving the planet? Will you help us so that we can do this together? That's quite a different emphasis than saying, I'm going to be as powerful as you are. 
and do what I want. There's so many ways I want to respond to that. Yes, I think the values are incredibly important. And we have to come back and individually search within ourselves what our values are. I think it's not a practice that so many people are doing these days. And the other thing I want to talk about is money. Because I feel like because the woman has not been valued monetarily for her role in the household, that there's been this desire to prove oneself in other spaces, which is great because there's women in the business world and there's women that are out and creating all sorts of things in exchange for money. And I've seen personally, in my experience in the business world, the desire to be like men because that's what's worked in the business world and that's kind of what you're taught to emulate yourself after. And I'm curious how money stands in the way, you know, of this desire to serve. It comes up even for Lauren and I in this desire to continue serving, but there's also this standard of living and this way of surviving in this current culture um, where you have to make money. And so I'm curious about your thoughts around money and how that either helps or hinders us in this path forward. Well, I think money can be a servant, but if it becomes the manager of your life, then the values get skewed. It's just a question of proportion. I think, as you say, particularly women of your age, you have to earn your living. You have to find the the best way of earning your living. But if it's getting to the point where you're getting exhausted or angry with everybody or you're ill, then you have to find another profession which doesn't harm you and doesn't sort of make conflict in your environment or in your relationship, say, with your partner or or your children. So it's a question of learning how to balance. I've had to earn money in the shop, for instance, when I had my shop and when I was an analyst, I was earning money, but it was always a subsidiary thing. It wasn't the major aim of my life to make money. I didn't want to be very, very rich or powerful. I didn't want to reach the top of my profession. I simply wanted to do what I loved doing. And I think that many women are discovering this because there are thousands of different professions now, say from having a flower shop to cooking, a wonderful profession. Many, many cooks now are women, chefs rather. And there are just dozens and dozens of different professions. And when you look at the whole of humanity and all the different things that people do with their hands, particularly with their hands, also with their mind, minds, but mainly with their hearts. That's the most important thing, to follow what your heart feels right doing. But then there are just millions and millions of different professions, almost as many as there are people on the planet. When you look at the, the Far East or you look at um, Africa or you look at South America, all the different kinds of professions there are for both men and women. And this has all come in the last hundred years or so in relation to the kind of professions there were before, which were very few. You could probably count them on the fingers of the hand before. But the expansion of creative abilities has been enormous in the last hundred years for men and women, but mainly for women, I think, because they hadn't had it before. And also they bring their children up with the idea that they can find what they're interested in and you know, that they give them a wider horizon than perhaps my grandmother or my mother had, certainly my grandmother and my mother. My mother never set foot in a kitchen the whole life because she always had somebody to do the cooking. So, you know, but I had to learn how to cook in my generation. So there's a big change there. 
I was brought up in quite a different sort of framework. And, and the idea that I would not work, I would marry, that was my destiny. And that was my only destiny until I went to the Far East and, and explored all these other cultures and came back and thought, God, I don't want to hang around <laughs> doing nothing until I marry. I want to find something that really interests me. And that's when I had the shop and the designing dresses and everything, which made me a lot of money. <laughs> I was very successful and, um, and loved it and designed twice a year. I designed these wonderful evening dresses because that's what people wore then. And anyway, uh, that went very well for 12 years. It, it's such a beautiful testament how your exploration led to a passion, which then sustained you and then led you on this path that you're now on, that you've been on for so long. That's so inspiring to all of us, that it, it's paving a way for all of us. And you ask in your book, you say there's questions that we should really be asking. And I have your book open right here. and the number four the question how do we relinquish the beliefs and patterns of behavior that have been so damaging to both soul and body as well as the planet as we move into this time of transformation as you call it so i'd love to hear a little bit about that and also this this time that we're entering into which i've always i call our great rebirth and you call the time of transformation well, it is, a, it is a birth, and it's very difficult birth, too, because we're stuck in the canal at the moment. <laughs> we're stuck in the birth canal. And whether we get through or not, it, it's not, not certain, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's all up for grabs, so to speak. So we just have to see, understand what's happening, have compassion for what's happening, don't get too anxious about it, because we are receiving help. The fact that people are waking up all over the world is a sign that our soul is waking up and, and telling us that we have to change. So we have to just trust that, trust our heart, trust the, the messages that are coming to us, as it were, from the cosmos, saying it's time for change. I think that many things are happening. One of the things I want to say to you, which I've been thinking about the last week or so, is that in relation to the continuation of war, I think women all over the world now, from every culture and every religion, need to speak up and say, I refuse to allow my children to be sacrificed anymore. I've taken this trouble to be, give birth to them, bring them up, give them all the love that I could look, possibly give them, give them the help that they need to get going in the world, only to see them killed or to see them killing other people. And I think women need to say, we simply will not tolerate this anymore. It's gone on for 4,000 years, and we won't just put our children forward to be sacrificed for the sake of our country anymore, or for the sake of anything anymore. That's one thing that has occurred to me, because women have the power to change things at a very deep level. If they can come together over this, they really could change things mm -hmm. from every culture, and not depend on the United Nations, not depend on, on any organization at all, but just gather together, gather the women, bring them together and say, let them speak with one voice. We will not tolerate this anymore. We will not sacrifice our children to these ridiculous wars, which don't bring anything in the end except more suffering. When you look at all the suffering in the Middle East and wherever in Africa and the suffering of the children in particular, it's an outrage against the cosmic order or against the sacredness of life. And I think this is something that women have forgotten, that life is sacred. 
It's not for mm -hmm. us to just throw away or use or kill other people. There's so many murders that go on now because people have no values anymore. So that's a bit of a, um, a rant, if you like, but I, I feel it very strongly. Thank you. That had so many nuggets in it that I want to expand on. And what we hear a lot from women is this fear to speak up, this fear to stand alone. And I think there's been this, obviously there's been this history of oppression and subjugation of women, witch burnings, women that were out like beautiful medicine carriers or midwives being harmed for speaking out, for standing up. And I think that definitely stems from our creation story, Adam and Eve, Eve being this temptress, this this curious seeker of knowledge that is cast out. Can you talk about how this creation story that has shaped Western culture in this past 4,000 years has led to the subjugation of women and then also the, that pattern in our psyche of subjugating our own voices, our, ourselves? Yes, well, I had that myself because it took me a long time before I could give lectures or talks or speak up. And I don't think that it's necessary for women to take on the culture that we're in and necessarily attack it. It can be done in a more subtle way, which I've just been saying, women coming together to say, we will not tolerate this anymore as a group. They can do that as a group. So it's not really going up like, say, Donald Trump and saying to the people, you've got to follow me in this way. It, it can't be done in the old masculine way. It mm -hmm. has to be done in a feminine way. And I just want to go into that myth for a minute, because I've, since I wrote the book, I've discovered more through the work of two women. One is an Old Testament scholar called Dr. Margaret Barker, and the other is a great friend of mine called Betty Kovacs, who wrote a book called Merchants of Light about two years ago. And in it, she told the story of how that myth came into being. In the 7th century BC, in 621 BC, in the Temple of Jerusalem, there was a group of priests called Deuteronomists who took over the temple and banished the goddess who at that time was married to Yahweh. Uh, so there's always the male and female, the god and the goddess, who were the creators together of the world and who, so to speak, were in the Garden of Eden, or the Garden of Eden was them, if you like. And then these priests got rid of the goddess, whose name was Asherah, destroyed her sacred groves, threw her statue out of the temple, threw the serpent, um, which was the symbol of her power to regenerate life, also out of the temple, and created, they created the myth of the fall in chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis. And they turned the goddess into Eve. And the goddess had always been called the mother of all living. And they gave that title to Eve. And then came the story of Eve taking the apple from the tree. There was only used, there used to be only one tree, the tree of life in the garden. But they put two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And Eve took the apple from the tree of knowledge. And you can read that in a very positive sense that Eve wanted to know more. Eve was the first step, as it were, to helping women to become what they're becoming today. But at the same time, she was blamed. And I have a wonderful picture, I think it's in my book, of Adam pointing a finger at Eve, saying, she did it. <laughs> and from that time on, woman has always been regarded with suspicion. 
in case she might do it again. And this is where women's fear of speaking comes from, speaking up or, or taking action. It is deeply, deeply programmed by that myth, which I think has been a total disaster because it gave people the idea that they were sinful, that they were bad, that they were guilty, that they'd done something terrible right at the beginning of our evolution, which had brought all the disasters of death and suffering upon us. And, and this is nonsense. And it needs to be loudly proclaimed that it's nonsense. We are not sinful people. We are not fallen people. We are not guilty and never have been. So this was a construction. But you can see how powerful a construction like that, when it's embodied in a myth and taught when people were illiterate, taught from every pulpit, both in Judaism and Christianity. It's been an absolute catastrophe for women. And they're only just coming out of it now. But I think if women understood where their sense of fear and hesitation in speaking comes from, I think it would help them to overcome the effect of that myth and really get rid of it. It can be read in another way, but unfortunately, the way that it was interpreted is the way that we know, what you know about, I know about, the way that really punished women for being connected with Eve in the first place. She was the primal sinner, as it were, and women have been tainted with that guilt ever since. And it even it, it went over into Islam as well, because Islam also knew about that myth. It's for women to understand how far back it goes. Yes, exactly. That's 2,600 years that we've been programmed. So I'm curious about myths in general, because what comes to mind is, oh, well, we have to create another myth. You know, what's the myth of today? What's the myth of this this time that you're calling the stellar times? How do we create a vision for our collective humanity to see? Because I know what leads me forward and what leads Lauren forward is this vision of a healthy planet, you know, and healthy consciousness. And and it's been coming to me a lot more recently about this, this shared vision we can create together. Because if we can create something that people can hold on to, we can begin to take the steps to move towards it. And without that myth, it's harder. It's harder to see beyond the chaos that's ensuing in these times. So I'm curious about if you think there needs to be a new myth or if there's a different way. Well, I have called the new myth the new story. I've actually called it that in the, in the uh, Dream of the Cosmos, but also in my talks recently and on my website, I call it the new story. So it's, it's the new myth, and the new myth is of humanity united, all its different groups, all its different nationalities, all its different colors, all its different beliefs, united in service of the planet. That is the new myth. It doesn't matter about who we are individually, although it's important we bring our individuality into this because you know we are who we are, and all our gifts and qualities are very important, but they're not in sort of opposition to other people's gifts and qualities or other religions. We, we have to work together now. It's too late to stay in the old patterns. And the second thing we have to overcome in the new story is the scientific rationalist belief or materialist, materialist belief, which is called scientific reductionism or scientific materialism, which has again given us the wrong story, which has told us that we're we only live in this one material reality. There's, there is no other reality. 
There is, there is nothing else in the cosmos except us conscious on this planet. There are no other people in the universe who are, who are conscious, which is ludicrous because shamanic cultures have been in touch for, for thousands of years with people on other planets or other planetary systems. They know all about it. But the, the reductionist scientists are too proud and too ignorant to take on board this other knowledge or this other experience. So we have to ditch that myth as well, that we're, uh, first of all, that our consciousness comes from the physical brain and that when we die, that's the end of us. That's a complete lie because we go on. We are, so to speak, immortal beings who are, as it were, recycled in reincarnation. We come back to the planet or we go to other planets. I don't know which necessarily. I wouldn't want to commit myself there. But we don't die. So the whole story of death being the end is as dangerous and catastrophic in its effect on us because it's made us fear death and when you have a culture now going through COVID-19 when so many people are dying without knowing that they're not going to die it's tragic mm -hmm. so they're full of fear fear of the disease first of all and then fear of dying and I think personally that fear of dying is at the root of war, because if you kill other people, it means that you're more, more, more stronger, as it were, than, than the people who've died. So you're, so to speak, immortal. So that's a very profound thought, which is on my website in different places. So we have to get rid of the scientific myth, and we have to get rid of the myth of the fall, those two myths, ditch, ditch them both, and go into this new story, which is about relationship. The key word is relationship, relationship with the earth and relationship with the cosmos and with our own soul. So that's quite a lot to have got, got out of myself. <laughs> it brought tears to my eyes. I had to close my eyes and really feel that because I believe that that myth, that new myth that is, is emergent, it's emergent in the soul that awakens. And I know that it's such a dream for so many, like, yes, this. And that people can be so discouraged and the old patterns and the old myths and the old paradigm can sink in and block people off from embodying the truth of that. And so I'd love to segue into your exploration into quantum physics and the unified field and explaining the emerging sciences that are connected to spirit and soul. Yes, they are. Well, I gave that lecture, which I told you about on unified physics, which I took a course in that with somebody called Nassim Haramein. Who I've met, by the way. You've met him, have you? I've met him. I went to the premiere of the documentary. Oh, did you? So did I. I did. <laughs> I could have <laughs> met you then. Anyway, he came to dinner afterwards with us. We had a lovely time. He's a lovely man. And I learned so much on that course, which they explained it so well. It took me about 12 weeks to complete it. And at the end of it, I wrote that uh, talk and gave it in a place in England. And it's been viewed many, many times on the Internet. So I hope that it's reaching a lot of people because he explained so clearly, you know, how we're all connected through these tiny, uh, what he called Planck quantum elements or whatever they're called, Planck units, which are so small, you can't imagine how small they are. But they're like tiny wormholes all connected to each other at that infinitely small tiny level of, of uh, being in the universe. And, and that is what's holding the whole universe together with all the thousands of galaxies and, 
planetary systems and everything, it's all held together at the infinitesimal level by these Planck units. And I, it, I think it's fascinating, really. And if children were taught this in school, what a difference it would make to their understanding as they grew up, to, that they're all connected. They don't need to fight each other. They don't need to compete with each other, but they need to work together to create a better world and a world that is a healthy world because we're, we're sick. Many of us all over the world are, are sick through eating the wrong food, through the soil being treated in the wrong way, agriculture um, treating the soil in the wrong way. So there's a tremendous revolution in the agricultural level that's needed before we eat healthily. And we also need to reduce our numbers and have fewer children. We have to limit ourselves if possible to no more than two children. And people don't like the idea of being told they can't have more than two children. But if we don't do it, life will do it for us and it will just wipe us out in more pandemics if we don't take these steps to really have the right sort of agriculture and the right sort of food, which we can teach our children um, as they grow up. We can teach them about what foods are good and what foods are not so good. And also we can teach them how to treat the earth with reverence and care as they grow up You know, take them out into the woods to touch things and have an own little patch if they can have their own little tiny garden where they can put seeds in and grow things. You can teach children so much in that way. So there are revolutions that are going on. There's a marvelous woman in India called Vandana Shiva, who for years has been going on about the rape of the soil and the rape of the earth and the fact that people like Monsanto are trying to get control of all the seeds in the world. This is monstrous. It, it's a crime against humanity. So people are becoming, through her, are becoming aware of things like that. They're becoming aware of quantum physics through Nassim Haramein and other people. And they're becoming aware of, of a need to bring up their children in a different way and to eat different foods more carefully, not junk foods. There's so much diabetes around through eating too much sugar. There are many fields when, where women's voice and women's wisdom could be put to use, really, because women have an innate deep wisdom in them of what is right for life and what's right for their children. That brings to mind God, the goddess, the great mother, and that archetypal consciousness within us. And I wanted to ask you about your personal relationship to God, goddess, and how you relate to it. Um, and do you communicate with the goddess? Do you communicate with God? How, what is your relationship and why? Well, you've probably read chapter three in my book on the Shekinah of Kabbalah, because that was the only tradition which kept the relationship of God and goddess together. I've studied Kabbalah, but I'm not a Kabbalist, but I have studied it. And what happened was this. I had a dream when I was in my 40s, in the middle of my analysis, or one of my analyses, and I had a dream of a cosmic woman who filled the whole space between earth and sky. That was a vision, really, not so much a dream, but a vision. And she had a huge wheel in her abdomen, and I was lying on my back looking up at her, this tiny little me with an enormous goddess, and I had a wheel like hers in my abdomen too, but mine was on the left, and she indicated to me that I was to move my wheel to the middle like hers. So I took that to mean that I was to become more conscious of what she stood for 
and of the whole feminine principle. And that was when I began to wake up, so to speak, and I began to serve the feminine principle and bring it back into consciousness and write the books with my friend, first of all, and finally, The Dream of the Cosmos, and also another book called The Divine Feminine um, and The Mystic Vision. It's taken me 49 years to really bring that vision through. I'm now 89. And through my writing, not through and through my speaks, my, my talks and, and my lectures, and through my website now, I've been able to, to do what I can for that principle. And I must tell you another fascinating fact that the um, Holy Spirit, which in Christianity is male, was always female until 325 AD in a particular council that took place, a Christian council. In Judaism, she was always the Holy Spirit and she was divine wisdom. And that was what the Deuteronomists got rid of, the, uh, the feminine aspect of God as the Holy Spirit and as divine wisdom. Called Sophia, correct? Sophia. She became Sophia in the Greek world, in Alexandria. Her name changed from the Shekinah to Sophia as wisdom. And luckily, there were people who kept alive this tradition. There were Jews who left Jerusalem in various stages and settled in Alexandria in Egypt. And they kept alive this ancient tradition of the goddess and nourished it really with their belief and passed it on to the Gnostic groups of Christianity, the people who took wisdom as their guide, but who followed the teaching of Jesus. And also, it was always known that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. And this is the other huge mistake that Christianity made and I've written about this, and there, there will be a book published in the autumn in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, but it will be translated into English, which, which proves every inch of the way how she became his wife, how important she was as co-teacher with Jesus. Mm -hmm. All that was wiped out with the voice of the feminine. But it's coming back now. There are many women who've written books on Mary Magdalene, and there's a wonderful woman called Cynthia Bujot, uh, who has written one, and the, the other ones I'm sure you know. But, and I've, this has been my particular interest in the last two years because I became on the faculty of Ubiquity University and they have some branch of that called the Chartres community to do the Chartres Cathedral. And for three or four years now, I've been speaking about Mary Magdalene and her marriage to, to Jesus and how she brought that tradition to France in 44 AD and taught in France for 20 years. And there's a new gospel called the Gospel of the Beloved Companion, which perhaps you know about. No, that gospel I don't know. Get a copy of it immediately from Amazon. Gospel of the Beloved Companion. It's written by Mary Magdalene herself. It's in addition to the known Gospel of Mary that we know about already. Mm -hmm. But it fills in the missing passages in the, in the known Gospel of Mary. Are you saying the missing passages in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene have been found? The manuscript that she brought with her, either brought with her to France, which I think she did, but also another copy. It's a long story. Uh, there was a, copies of it probably left in Alexandria or in Palestine even. And the person who wrote the Gospel of John copied her Gospel, but changed everything into the male format, God the Father. It's fascinating and because in the Gospel of the Beloved Companion, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as she and her, mm. so that when he was baptized, it was the, the Holy Spirit 
as feminine who blessed him and baptized and you know was present at the baptism and mary magdalene was present at the baptism and was baptized as well you don't hear that that was cut out of the gospel of john so there's a great deal that's being discovered now which is very very exciting and which you need to know about and all the women who are listening to will listen to you need to know that Mary Magdalene was definitely the, the beloved consort of Jesus, or Yeshua, as he was called in his Aramaic name. Yeshua and Miriam, they were married, they had three children, and she took this teaching to France and taught there for 20 years and was well known and, and absolutely revered there. And what happened was that her manuscript was passed from hand to hand until the 12th century, when it was translated into the language of southwestern France called the Languedoc. And then it was still passed on through persecution, terrible persecution. It was the most precious document that the people of that area had called the Cathars. And it was passed on to the present day in a secret community or withdrawn community who finally allowed it to be published in 2009 by one woman who is called Jehan de Quillon. So that's the story. And, and those two stories about the Deuteronomist priest and about this manuscript of Mary Magdalene are the two key elements which are bringing a much deeper understanding and richer understanding of this lost tradition of wisdom. And the tradition of wisdom taught what I've been telling you, that everything is sacred and that we are all part of the unity of the cosmos. And we have a function on this planet, which is not to be born, grow up and get married and have a job, but to find ways of serving the planet, whatever ways we can. All of us are gifted in different ways. Some may be good with looking after children, some with animals, some with plants and flowers and trees, some with writing, some like you're doing with speaking and transmitting. We're all gifted and we can use those gifts knowing that we are serving something greater than ourselves. I feel so liberated by what you share and the history and the story. It's incredible how spaciousness it allows me to feel like in my own body. I think it's so empowering. And also for me, it's wonderful because I can expand into your generation and all the women who you will contact. I can put forth what I know, which is my gift, if you like, to life, pass it on to all the women who will listen. And that's wonderful for me. That's a great privilege and a great honor for me. I mean, I've been trained to do this all my life. I've been preparing, waiting really for a moment and the opportunity to pass all this on. Are there more opportunities to learn from you? I know that you've been doing so much work for so many years and you're already such a warrioress at the age of 89, just going strong and sharing this powerful, important message for the times. And is there any we have your books, we have your website. Is there any way that women can continue to dive into your work? I think really the talks on my website are probably the best thing on the playlist and the books. I think if for, for women who can understand the dream of the cosmos, for whom it's not too big or too daunting, that would be a wonderful book because as they read it, they get transformed, they understand and they can relate to what they're understanding. But if they want a shorter book, then The Divine Feminine is, is one which just gives different cultures, how the feminine was honored in different cultures, ranging from the Chinese to the Indian, to the ancient Sumerian, to the Egyptian, 
it's it's quite a small book, but it's a good beginnings book. There's so much in reading The Dream of the Cosmos for all those people that are listening. It feels like an answer to a prayer that's like, can you show me with, I don't know, fact, you know, the, like this this masculine way of looking at things to prove to me what I feel in my own being, that these times are here for a reason and that there's there actually has been oppression. <laughs> this is why and these are the stories behind it. So I just yeah, there's, there's terrible oppression. Somebody like me would have been burnt at the stake many times over. Yes. And this is why you're so incredible. This is why your generation and women like you deserve so much gratitude from people like us, because we're what we're doing is only possible because you helped shift the consciousness. You took strides to study about something that was taboo at the time. And You've used your voice and your service to the planet to courageously share what's true and what you've discovered. And that's made it easier for women like us to speak and also to even access the information in our own beings. Women need that information because a lot of women lack it today. They're coming, as it were, without knowing their past at all. Right. And therefore, they may be too raw and too aggressive in their longing to be like men. They've got the wrong aim. If they knew their past and if they knew what they could be in the way of holding the values, I think this would give them a tremendous role to play in what we're going through now in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> because things are going to be very, very difficult in 20 years' time, much more difficult than they are now. And you need to prepare any children you have. You need to teach them how to grow vegetables and, and things like that. You need to prepare them for the difficulty ahead and not frighten them, but just make it fun to, to grow vegetables. Make it something to do with you that you enjoy doing that you can pass on to them or anything really, that any gift that you can pass on to them. So my mother prepared the way for me because she was interested in, in these things. She was even interested in Mary Magdalene in 1945 and wrote a little book about her. Wow. So I had my ground too, giving, passing on to me when I was 12 to 18 or whatever. We also had channeled messages. She had channeled messages from what she called the higher beings. So she had guidance or I had guidance too. And I was told that I had a task to do with women and that I was to educate myself and prepare and that my life would unfold as, as it would do, so to speak. But I wasn't to worry about things. I was just to get on with learning and preparing. So that was a tremendous help because it gave me a context. It gave me a framework. And I knew that uh, beyond getting married and having children and, or grandchild, I had this other work to do, which I'd been prepared for, really, by my mother and, and all my life. And I had to, first of all, get a university degree then I had to get a qualification like being a union analyst to have the authority to speak, uh, which I have now. And also I've been given a, a PhD by Ubiquity University, uh, which again has given me some authority in the academic world. So all these things help and it's not necessary to have what I've got. You just have to have whatever you've got, what other, other women have, but know that they come from a long, long, long history of oppression and, and silencing of women, particularly in Christianity. It's been particularly bad there, and Islam as well. I, can't, I think Judaism is less oppressive, certainly, now than it was. But Christianity has been appalling, appalling for women. 
and still is in some in some groups really in America, even in the Baptist groups, women are told they can't speak out. So you have to look at what formation you were given at school, and what religious formation, what social formation, what values formation. Women need to ask themselves, is this enough or do I need more? Do I need to understand more and give more beyond what I've been programmed to do as a child or as an adolescent or as a student at university? How can I go deeper, look wider, and realize that there's a far bigger framework that I'm in now than I ever have been in in the last 10,000 years, so to speak. I feel so grateful to have had this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will really just understand the richness of what you have to offer. So beautiful, Anne. I so appreciate you and your path. And in choosing to listen, I feel like so many of us are given a message at some point in our lives, but are overcome by fear or doubt or uncertainty. And so the fact that you listened and walked your path with humility and beauty is just such a wonderful thing to see. And so I appreciate you for that. Well, thank you very much. It's it's lovely to be appreciated. That's very nice. I think you asked me two questions. What does it mean to me, the feminine? I think we've gone through that. And what would the message from the Divine Mother be? Is there time for that? Yes. Yes, that's perfect. That's how we like to close. Okay. Well, the message would be, serve my life. I think that's all I need to say. Thank you, Anne. It's been such a pleasure. And I hope that we can do this again at some point or come together again in some way. I think our audience would really love that. Well, I would love it too. Thank you so much for offering me this opportunity. And I've enjoyed myself and loved meeting you both. So thank you. 